AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Crystal Miller is here. You are a survivor of Columbine, which is just fascinating to me to even think about. I remember when that happened, and I think a lot of us do um, just in this culture. But it is crazy because the more I researched about your story and just that shooting in general, I, I know for me it was the first big shooting that I like have any memory of or anything like that. And then we've had so many since, and the truth about the whole matter is that nothing has actually really changed since then. So I wanted to give listeners um, just a little bit of the journey of what it looks like whenever a tragedy or trauma like this happens and um, what happens after that, because I think a lot of us keep forgetting, you know, it's just the thing of, oh, that big thing happened. We'll post about it on Instagram for a week and then we go about our lives until the next one happens. And I know that's not the case for people who are affected by these kind of things or who have been there, who were there for it. So first of all, welcome. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks for having me. It's it's an honor to be here. And if you would, I know um, the basics of the shooting are that it happened on April 20th of 1999, which was Hitler's birthday, which is very haunting to me. Uh. Um, Dylan, is it Klebold? Is that how we say his name? Yes, it is. And Eric Harris were two kids that went to school with you at Columbine. They killed 13 people and wounded more than 20 others. They then committed suicide by shooting themselves in the head of the school library. You were in the library, which is apparently the place where the most people were killed. Is that correct? That's correct, Kelly. Yes, the library was the scene of the most intense violence at Columbine. Um, 10 of the 13 were killed in the library. 12 of those 20 plus were uh, wounded there inside of the library. And I was right there in the very center in the midst of it. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, just talk through this day with us. I mean, I know it just probably is a story you've told a million times, but I've listened to your story and it really helped me to visualize just the breakdown with just the details of a normal day. So can you talk us through your day that day? 
Yeah, I think that's what's what's most interesting is it just seemed like any other day. You know, we had just had prom. I was a 16-year-old junior. I mean, the biggest concerns on my mind were fitting in, being popular, were the boys that I liked and the sports that I played and making sure that I got good grades. I mean, very 16-year-old stuff. Yeah. And on that particular day, I mean, there's warning signs. There's things that happen now looking back that pointed to what was about to happen, but we didn't recognize those. We simply went on with our day as normal and went through the first four periods of, of school like any other day. And a friend of mine by the name of Seth was waiting outside of my classroom. And we usually left campus to go eat because we could come and go. And I begged him and his sister, Sarah, actually, who were two good friends of mine to come to the library with, with me that day, you know, and of course you just wonder, is it, is it my fault that we were there that day? And we went into the library five minutes in the library. We were not in there for very long. Chaos broke out in and around the school. I remember glancing over to the hallway and I saw students running with looks of terror and panic on their faces, but we, we, we couldn't see what was happening or hear what was happening. About that time, a teacher came running through the library doors and she said, there's guys with guns and bombs. They're shooting students, hide under your tables. And we thought it was a joke. We, we couldn't possibly wrap our minds around what she was actually saying. But as we just down the hall kind of started to hear the unmistakable sound of gunfire, we knew that we better take cover. And it was too late to run somewhere else or find a good place to hide. So we took cover underneath of our tables. They didn't offer a whole lot of protection. And my, my friend says, said, start praying. God can get us out of here. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how to pray or what to say. God save us. Let this all be over. But it was just the beginning because those two boys entered the library and they started their killing spree that lasted seven and a half minutes. And that may not sound like a lot of time, but it felt like an eternity. It felt like time stood still. And I, the whole time they were in the library, I mean, I literally contemplated what it would feel like to get shot. Mm. If I would die quickly, if I would suffer slowly. I mean, all I knew of violence was what I'd seen in the movies, but it wasn't Hollywood. I mean, this was real life. And I, really literally saw my life flash before my eyes, like all the past regrets, wishing I had a chance to do them over and the hopes and dreams for my future slipping through my fingers and just knowing I would never see those that I loved the most ever again. I was convinced that I was 16 and I was about, my life was about to end. And, um, Yeah. And, and so they went around for several minutes, picking out their victims based on the way that they looked, the color of their skin, if they were overweight and gunning down their victims based on those things. And the whole time, just underneath of the table, just praying, just praying that it would, that it would be over, that someone would come to help us. And after a few moments, they made their way up the middle section where we were hiding and they first turned to the table right next to us, just a few feet away. And they They shot and they killed the boy who was underneath the table. They then turned their attention to our table, pushed a chair in underneath, and I felt it hit my my back. I knew that they were just inches (coughs) from my body, and I could hear them talking, kind of dumping out their weapons on the table above to take inventory, and they realized they needed more ammo. They said they were going to leave to go reload, 
And they made it very clear that they were coming back though, to kill those of us who are still alive. And so we knew we had just a small window of opportunity to escape before they returned. And so we got up and we ran towards the exit and it looked like a war, looked like a war zone in that small library. And I was forced to literally step over the bodies of my friends and classmates so that I could make it out alive. I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine at 16, it's hard to imagine at any age, it Mm -hmm. should not happen. Um, But at 16, that this was, this was my new reality. This was my story. Um, And of course, everything from that moment changed. I knew that life as I knew it would never again be the same. So you had that awareness in that moment. You know, I do. I remember um, just moments after I was I was standing in a field and it, it felt like everybody was just scattering and I was left standing there alone. And I didn't know what I had even seen or experienced inside of that library, but I, I did know that my life would never again be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, I, I, I didn't know the ins and the outs of that. I couldn't yeah. explain that to you, but I just knew that there was a shift in that moment. And of course there was, I mean, right. everything about life changed. I was thinking about when you're talking about being under the table and just, it's crazy to me. I always wonder, you know, you hear people talk about like in a near death experience, their life flashing before their eyes. So you were seeing all these things. Were you panicking? Were you like in shock? Like what did your body feel like? Oh yeah. I've, uh, it's such a, a I've never felt more fear in my life. I mean, every fiber of my entire being um, was just, it was shaking uncontrollably. Um, I I was going into shock. So physically I was like experiencing shock. Um, Every emotion and then no emotions at all. And you're numb and you're in shock. I mean, it's so hard to describe in that actual moment. The, the, my friend who I was with underneath of the table, his name was Seth. And he had a lot of wherewithal and understanding of what was happening much more than myself. And I'm so thankful that I was with him because he really helped kind of guide us. And in fact, at one point I didn't share it in my story, but he grabbed my body and he said, Crystal, I promise that I will take a bullet for you. Like he knew what was coming when there was just a lot of chaos and a lot of things I couldn't understand that were happening around me. Oh my God. You, you, had, you mentioned that you had seen signs. Did you mean specifically that morning you noticed that things were weird or leading up to yeah, that's um, a, the event? That's a great question, Chip. I, I would say that day, I mean, personally for me, I had woken up late and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to my dad. And that was kind of a routine we had every morning that particular day on our announcements for the school, they were always done on the TV screens and they were telling us what was for lunch, the sporting activities after school. And the quote that day said, you'll wish you weren't here today. And I think that being the biggest sign um, of, of, because those two boys actually worked behind the scenes on the video production. And they had put that there kind of as a warning of, of what was about to happen. Wow. wow. So that came, that was a message that came from them. Yes. Wow. Crazy. I mean, in the day That's was weird evil. anyway. 
It, it is. It's it absolutely is. And the day was chosen by those two boys because it was Hitler's birthday. Things were already a bit strange because it was 420. And so mm-hmm. things were a bit off. I mean, there was just a lot of a lot of kind of strange things about the day. So the other thing that's so interesting, and I went to a really small high school, and so I don't know how big Columbine was, but we knew everyone. And so I wonder, like you said, you had friends who you were watching die, which I cannot process the trauma around that and how scary that would be. But then also, did you know the two shooters? You know, you're exactly right. (laughs) We did have a really big school, about 2000 plus students. So it was impossible to know everybody. They were seniors. I was a junior. I remember looking back, I remembered passing them in the hall, um, but I did not know them personally. Okay. And then what was it like in the library as you watched your friends be shot? What, like, what is going through your head in that moment? You know, I didn't actually see them shot because my friend Seth kind of had his body sheltering mine. I was kind of buried in his chest. Thankfully, I'm a very sensitive person. um, And so I'm very thankful I didn't actually see that. But, but I don't think, I mean, you really almost to protect yourself, you, you have to, you know, there's, there's defenses that, that we, that, um, that our bodies just kind of do naturally. And so for me, even as I was stepping over those bodies, I I wasn't processing it. I wasn't understanding what was happening Mm -hmm. in the moment. It took some time to go back and to really process and work through that. Mm -hmm. So then it went that, it ended up the guys committed suicide and you guys were able to escape the library. Thankfully, what happened next? Um, You know, when we first came out of the library, it was, it was very disorienting because we went from this dark room that was filled with smoke and the fire alarms were going off and we step out into the bright sunlight and trying to figure out where we can go, where we're safe. I mean, everything we just had known for 16 years of our lives was turned upside down. We didn't know who to trust, where we could go that was safe. I saw a police car just a few yards from the school. And so we ran to get behind the police car. There was no police officer. They were off exchanging gunfire with the boys in in the library. But most of the students had been very badly wounded. There was a lot of blood. I mean, again, it just looked like a war zone in front of me. And people were, were springing to action and they were They were helping people who were bleeding and, but I grew hysterical over the sight of blood and, and over the wounds and from the shock of it all really. Mm -hmm. And so we were waiting for police cars to come take the most wounded away from the scene. And I was separated from Seth and Sarah, my friends. And, um, I was, I was picked up by a police car and dropped off in a field just behind the school. And that's kind of when everyone scattered and I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. Um, my safety, my security had been stolen. Yeah. So what did you do? You just stood um, there until someone I came kinda, and got you? Yeah, I stood in place and the, uh, someone with the media came and they were interviewing me. I mean, I have clips of me literally moments after coming out of the library, absolutely hysterical, trying to make sense of it. And, um, it wasn't a few minutes later, a friend came up, Seth again, and found us or found me rather. And we tried to, to make our way to, to a phone so we could call our parents so we could let them know that we were okay. 
I cannot imagine being a parent and then getting that call. I mean, have you talked to your parents, I'm sure, about what was going through their head? Like, were they aware that the shooting was happening? They, they, they were, um, in fact, someone had called my parents and told them, uh, Hey, Crystal's in the library. We know she's in there. And it was at this point that reports were already coming in. Hey, all of the shooting is taking place in the library. My parents really feared the worst. They, they didn't, they didn't think that I would make it out alive. And I remember when I first picked up the phone and I talked to my dad, I mean, it was finally like my dad, just all of his emotion, his rush of emotion just, just came out. I rarely heard my dad cry and listening to him weep when he heard my voice. Um, and I just kept asking him, dad, where were you? Why didn't you protect me? Which is so horrifying, you know, that, that, that was my question. I mean, all I wanted was my, my dad, my parents in that moment, Um, But now as a parent myself of three young kids, I can't imagine either, Kelly. I can't imagine getting that call. I can't imagine watching that happen on the news. It's, Mm. it's, it's heartbreaking. It's horrifying. Yeah. It makes me sick in my stomach that the media came directly to you. Like that piece of it is to me, like a big part of kind of the things that Chip and I talk about, about like what's wrong with our culture, but like, the fact that they would come directly to a person that's so clearly in shock and in need of help is wild. Yeah. You know, media is definitely, um, it's been, it's been a problem since the events at Columbine. I mean, I, I still think we need to hold media a bit more accountable to how they actually, um, you know, report these kinds of things. And, I think even from day one, the way that they talked about the two shooters, giving them such notoriety, which Mm -hmm. is what a lot of a lot of these shooters desire. Um, There's I mean, there's so many things and we've seen a little bit of of, you know, we've seen a little bit of of progress in that area, but I still think we have a long way to go. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm always mortified when I see another shooting happen and they immediately go towards the kids and the young people and the, you know, I mean, it's hard enough to talk when you're in shock, but especially as a young person who doesn't have the language, who doesn't have the understanding or the, or the emotional capability to even, to even express themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's a it's a fine line because obviously the media is also trying to figure out what's happening so they can, you know, alert the public to it. But it's it seems a death place seems exploitative to, mm-hmm. you know, a, I mean, but, the, you know, again, they didn't know your story yet until they spoke to you. So there's a little bit of forgiveness there. But I definitely think when it's when it turns to the point where they know who the shooters are and they glorify that in any sort of ways that's when they're really crossing the line. Um, yeah, I mean, I, something that I, I was thinking about, like when you were talking about leaving the library, you know, you in that instance didn't even know the full picture of what was going on. Like you knew what was happening around you. So I can imagine the terror that like, you know, when, when you make that decision to leave the room, like you don't know if there's other, if it's just these two or if there's more people or what's going on. Um, and, you know, then to have to, like, be outside of the building, not knowing, like, who's watching, like, who's tag teaming this. It's, I mean, I just, it's my, my body's had, I've had chills the whole time you've been talking. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's impossible to put myself in your shoes. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's so hard when something like this happens, when it, when an event is unfolding is because there is so much chaos and there's so, so many moving pieces and there's so many unanswered questions. I think that's what makes it difficult for law enforcement. It's what makes it difficult for students, everybody involved, because there's so much chaos and so much confusion surrounding it. Um, But I would definitely, to your point that you just said, I would I would say, you know, part of my heart is because in the media, the the trauma and the, the event itself is always so sensationalized. My hope is always to sensationalize the hope and the stories and the people who survived and the people that we lost telling their stories. I think those are the important pieces that sometimes we, we miss. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we we recently talked to someone from every town and she's also lost many people in her family to gun violence. And she made a specific point to say, say their full name every time she talked about the story. And I pointed that out because to me, that was that is one of the things that gets really lost as we, like you said, either um, sensationalize the shooters or uh, the people who caused these things or uh, we just say the victims and we don't, we just kind of like, it's a generalization versus like a specific, no, this is a life lost. Here's who that person was. Here's their name. Here's who their family was, you know, because I think that is how we become so desensitized or we have become so desensitized to all of these losses. Yeah, I think you're right. I think when you, um, when you speak in general terms, yeah, it's easy to just post it on social media, as you said, and move along, maybe get angry for a couple of days and move along. But I think sometimes we can allow those intense emotions that we feel to, if we channel those to move us forward in progress, I think mm-hmm. we can really use those in a productive way. Now, I think there's a fine line of, of just being angry and being divided just for the sake of it. But then there's another to really taking those things and using them towards, towards action. And, you know, for me specifically, I have such a heart to wrap my arms around a hurting community and walk alongside of survivors. Sadly, I often talk about the fact that, you know, we're this, this, this community of survivors is growing exponentially by the day, you know, and I want people to understand that as a part of this community, that they're not alone, that they're seen, they're heard, they're valued, their story matters, regardless of where they were during the shooting. I just, I want people to know that that's what we're here for. We're going to link arms together and we're going to, we're going to see you through this. We're going to walk you towards hope and healing. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. It's one of those things where it's like, you mentioned this before we got on the podcast, but like Chip and I can sit here and empathize or sympathize with you and be like this, I can't imagine what that would feel like. And that's the point. We literally can't imagine it. And so there's only so many people or the community like you just described of people who can truly understand what that feels like and what the person might need after the fact, because it is a completely life-changing event, as you mentioned, I the trauma around it is not something that just goes away, you know? And so it's learning to live with this new, new experience that you went through. And I'm sure having the support of others who can relate is uh, just undeniably helpful. Yeah, you know, I, I think oftentimes when we walk through anything, now this is for a survivor or anybody who's who's mm-hmm. walked through difficult time. And that's all of us. That's all of us with skin totally. on who walk this planet. We all can understand what it is to to go through difficult circumstances. Um, but I really want people to understand that the the fear and the anger and the bitterness and the confusion and the anxiety and all of those feelings that you feel those are normal it doesn't it, people feel broken they feel like oh this is i'm i'm never going to be the same again and and i can't be fixed and what i say to people is those are completely normal those are those are so human and they're so natural and really for me they're indicators of areas that need to be addressed and so mm-hmm. in, instead of leaving people feeling hopeless and feeling like they're forever broken we're saying no this is normal and there's a way through we know enough about trauma on the brain and body. And therefore we know that it can be healed. And so I always try to bring that message of hope to other survivors to say, it doesn't end here. The trauma, the tragedy, it doesn't have the last say, but there's a way through it. And there's a way to thrive, not just survive, but thrive on the other side. Yeah. Can I ask did you ever feel guilty for surviving? 
Absolutely. Yes. Survivor's guilt is, is probably one of the most common things that all of survivors feel this idea Mm -hmm. of I'm thankful to be alive, but why did I survive? And other people didn't. And I mean, I can say from personal experience that yes, I was grateful that I survived, but there were so many days that I wished that I had died. I mean, the pain was overwhelming and the grief was so suffocating. I didn't know how I could walk through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet, you know, obviously that was in the days after, but it's a very common thing. So even in, in my kids book to survivors, I talk about the importance of, we must talk about the people that, that we've lost. And I know sometimes that can make people feel uncomfortable or anxious to talk about people who have died, but we have to remember their lives and the jokes that they told, and we can laugh and we can smile. Um, that's the best way that we can carry them, them with us and, and carry on their legacy. And in fact, I remember a story when the shootings at Columbine happened, my friend Cassie had died. I remember going to her parents' house for dinner and I expressed that very feeling to them, the survivor's guilt. I said, I'm so, I I feel so guilty that I'm here and Cassie isn't. And I feel guilty every time I smile or I laugh or I think about the future because you don't get to have that. And Cassie doesn't get to have that. And they looked me in the eye and they said, Crystal, the best way that you can honor Cassie's life is you can go and live yours. And you Mm -hmm. smile again and you laugh again and you live your life because that will honor our daughter the most. And that gave me kind of the permission that I needed to live life again and to Mm -hmm. know that it would be okay and know that it was okay that I lived. Yeah. Well, I'm imagining that there's a lot of mixed emotions to work through as grief does work. I mean, it seems like, you know, you kind of ride the waves of stuff. And this is one, like we said, that not a lot of people can directly identify with. And so how I found you was because we have um, a community here. What would you call on site? A therapeutic place that people Retreat, go yeah. retreat um they're all those all of those words all in one um but it's in nashville or outside of nashville and they have now created a program that you were very helpful in creating um called triumph over tragedy and it is directly made for people who have gone through and experienced such a tragedy as you have. So can you talk us through a little bit about the program, what it looks like, and how you guys are helping others? Absolutely. Chip, you nailed it. It's a therapeutic retreat center. There we go. Um, Yes. And so uh, it's such a beautiful place. I mean, the campus alone, the sprawling, beautiful place where it's quiet and you just get to reconnect with yourself and nature and all of those things. It's so important. Um, But we have a 40 bed facility that can accommodate um, a variety of people who are in different you know, walks of life, but specifically through the Onsite Foundation, we created a program called Triumph Over Tragedy. And I'm so proud of this program, mostly because there is nothing like it that exists for survivors out there. There's very few resources for survivors. And again, as we talked about, these these shootings have become so commonplace and this community of survivors continues to grow. We wanted to create a space where people could come and get the tools and get the help within community that they deserve. It doesn't matter their background, their socioeconomic status, race, religion, gender, 
anyone gets to come. Anyone is welcome and they get to come for free because of amazing donors um, who have made that possible. And so um, that's what's so special is that survivors Mm -hmm. come from all over the country representing all of the different tragedies that we've seen over the last many years. They come for a six day experience. It's a curated experience um, with the best in class experts in trauma trauma therapy. And so we use a variety of different modalities. Modalities is just a fancy way of saying different types of therapy, um, because we've really learned that with specifically with, um, school shootings or rather with mass shootings, that, um, there's such a high level of acuity that it's really important that talk therapy, the normal traditional talk therapy, it doesn't always, kind of process that trauma. So we get to use psychodrama therapy and body movement therapy and adventure therapy and art therapy and all of these beautiful different things. And we get to do so within community because we believe that healing takes place within community. And um, it's just such a, it's so amazing to see these survivors come in and they've been activated and they have all of, they're having nightmares. And um, I mean, the, the, the tragedy itself is just controlling their lives. And to see over six days, this transformation that takes place in all of us Mm. um, is remarkable. And people are getting their lives back. And though we can't go back to who we were before, we get to walk out a better version of ourselves. And that's really what Triumph Over Tragedy does. It gives you lifelong friends, people that you get to to do life with because that peer support, I think we mentioned it before is so vital in healing. We need one another. And so there's so many beautiful components to our program. I'm, it's one of the, 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 um, highest privileges of my life that I've been able to create this for fellow survivors. I bet I have such a mixed reaction to it because I want the people who have been through it to have somewhere to go. And it makes me really sad that we even have to have programs like this and that I'm sure the numbers are continuing to grow even greater. And, um, oh shoot, sorry. I keep getting these alerts on my phone, which are not good for podcast recordings. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's just, it's sad to me because the numbers are growing and they haven't changed. And um, the fact that there is a program out there like this is great and also really sad. Do you have those kind of feelings about it? Oh, absolutely. I wish with my whole heart that there was no need for triumph over tragedy, that there was no need for my books, that there was Mm -hmm. no need for me to speak. Um, You know, I've often said, and I've told my own children 23 years ago, when the events at Columbine happened, I hoped and prayed that it would be the last that nobody would, nobody else would have to experience what my family and my friends and my community experienced. And yet here we are 23 years down the road and, and the countless lives that have forever been changed and forever impacted. Um, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And I've, I've often said, I'm so sorry. I haven't mm-hmm. done enough. I wish I could do more. I'm trying to do my part, but, but it just continues to happen. And, and so to that end, I continue to do the work in, in, in way of prevention, but also to support those who have, who have experienced it and who have been affected by it. 
but I, I wish that I had a different job. I wish that, Mm -hmm. that this is not 23 years later, my career. Um, but I think what I am most passionate about is making sure that those who have been through it have the support that they need and they deserve. Oftentimes funds run up very quickly in communities where mass shootings happen. Um, there's very few resources. There's very few people um, who are trauma trained counselors and therapists who understand trauma, who can help people walk through that. And so we want to show people um, that there are tools, there are resources, they exist out there. And we're trying to create more, but um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's slow going, it's slow mm-hmm. going. This, this people are understanding more and more the need for mental health support, but it's, it's been a slow groundswell. And I think we're finally starting to see that and the, the importance of that, but it's taking time. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, it's two different conversations because obviously the prevention piece, as you said, is a really important one. And we've had some of those discussions on the podcast. Um, but I do want to keep this one focused to the people healing. And I, as, as it is with any trauma, I know that it becomes this lifelong journey that kind of ebbs and flows and, you know, you can get triggered. So what happens for you when it happens again? Like what happened for you when you saw Uvalde? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a, that's a kind of a complex answer, mostly because, um, over the last 23 years, I've worked very hard to, to work on my own healing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, Thankfully, I can say that when a shooting happens, I am not, um, I am activated in certain ways, but I am not re-traumatized, meaning I don't go back to being a Columbine 16-year-old kid underneath of the table. Mm -hmm. I can feel empathy and I can feel compassion for the the people who are walking through it. And that then spurs me on towards action. I'm not crippled by those, you know, by being reactivated. And that is not the case for everybody. A lot of times they see the news and they just, it, it completely takes them out you know, their emotions take over and they take control. I've learned enough tools and I've, I've learned enough things over the years that my emotions don't get to be the boss of me, Mm -hmm. that I actually get to be the boss of my emotions. And I find ways to manage those. However, um, the compassionate side of me takes over. And all I want to do is go and wrap my arms around a community. I want to go and I want to cry with people and, and be a listening ear because I think so often what happens is the survivor community is forgotten about, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that that's a forgotten group of people, as well as those who are, who have the secondary trauma, the family members, the siblings, you know, everybody is impacted and affected by a shooting. And so that's really my heart is to mobilize and to wrap, you know, this community around um, my arms around a community to bring the resources that I can to let them know there's programs like Triumph Over Tragedy that exist. Yeah, you just made a point. I I hadn't thought about this, but it does just extend further than the people who were even in the shooting. Like, I'm sure your parents had a really hard time sending you to school after that. They have their own trauma. Oh, absolutely. And especially now as a parent of my own small three children, you Mm -hmm. know, the idea of something like Uvalde happens or Newtown happens 
Parkland happens and then going and sending my kids off to school the next day is, is quite a challenge. And it's not just a challenge for me. That's true for every parent in America. No parent should have to, you know, kiss and hug their kids goodbye at their school steps and wonder if it's the last time they'll ever see them again. I mean, that is just the fact that that's even a question in our minds. is so tragic. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, the idea of being a parent who whose child has been through a school shooting or a, a spouse of somebody who's been through a mass shooting. I mean, the, the secondary trauma, the trauma is so far reaching. It's this chain reaction that happens. And that's why we need to mobilize and we need to really have mental health support for all of those involved, because I believe that that you know, it's not just the survivors, but to help the survivors, we have to be healthy as a community. Um, and so that's really, I think what we're trying to do. And that's why even at Triumph Over Tragedy, we have this education component mm-hmm. that if you could understand why you're feeling the same, why you're feeling the way that you're feeling or, or why you have those nightmares, you know, it helps you to actually process it and walk through it. And yeah. so I, I think that's an important piece in our culture. I do too. Also, you mentioned um, that you have some books and I want to talk about those because you have a book you said about your story in general that you wrote a long time ago. And then now you've transitioned into children's books, which again, I have that same mixed feeling of like, I hate that we have to do this, but because it is the nature of some of the things we have to deal with in our culture, I'm glad that you're putting resources out there. So tell us about all three books and, um, and kind of what made you want to do that to write about this stuff? Yeah, my first book is called Marked for Life. And like you said, it's just kind of the book about my story written many years ago. Of course, life has gone on and there's a lot to add to that story. Um, That's more of the chapter book, more for adults. And then you also mentioned I've got a couple of children's books. One is called A Kid's Book About School Shootings and one is called A Kid's Book About School Shootings for survivors. And really the heart behind the the two kids books is, you know, as a, as an adult, as a parent, it's really difficult to have this conversation with our kids, especially um, as, as the frequency of, of shootings happen, it dominates the headlines and it dominates the the hearts and the minds of our kids. Mm -hmm. And especially as they're walking through these, these active shooter drills or lockdown drills, they're constantly thinking about what if this happens to me? So it's really kind of talking about how important it is. Yes, they happen. Shootings are still very rare, but we have a plan in case of an emergency, just like we wear a seatbelt when you, when we're in the car or a safety helmet in case we fall off our bikes, it's important to have a plan but adults are, are working on that. We're doing everything we can to keep you safe, just reassuring kids that, that they're safe and we're doing our part to help keep them safe. And then it's also giving those practical tools, things like that we teach at the onsite you know, foundation, things that we teach through um, Triumph Over Tragedy is how we breathe through things and we can notice things to help ground ourselves or we can say a phrase over and over again to kind of calm our nerves when we're when we're feeling afraid. Um, it's giving them tools that they, they can kind of help them when they're feeling afraid or they're feeling 
you know, anxious about something. And then it's also empowering young kids to say, you can make change. You can help write letters or you can create a kindness club at your school, or you can talk about a plan to make sure that you're, you're prepared in the event of an emergency, kind of empowering kids to let them know it doesn't matter how young you are. You can make change in, um, in, in your school, in your neighborhood, in the world. So it's really several that, that kids, book about school shootings and it's creating a safe space for kids to ask questions without judgment mm. because they're thinking about it and they're wondering about it and if we don't talk about it kids think it's taboo they think it's too scary but when we open up that dialogue and we create that safe space we then get to teach kids okay it's okay to have these emotions that's normal here's what we do with them and here's how you can infect change and then the kids book about school shootings for survivors was born out of the events that happened in Uvalde and it's really me speaking directly to another survivor saying you're not alone I understand the the survivor's guilt and the grief and all of the feelings that you're feeling or none of the feelings that you're feeling, that paradox of wanting to sleep, but nightmares keep you up, wanting to eat, but you're not hungry, you know, speaking directly to what they're facing in the immediate days after a tragedy and telling them that they can remember the people that they lost and, you know, just reminding them once again that they're not alone. So that's kind of the heart behind those books. That's why I wrote those books. And again, I wish they didn't have to be written, but I am thankful that I get to help kind of reframe the conversation and and open up the dialogue. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. 
You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. My dad always says, I'm not going to get this right, the, the verbiage, but he says something about like your greatest hardship is usually the way that you end up helping people in your life and it becomes your greatest gift and your greatest asset. And I hear so much of that in your story. So thank you for doing all the work that you're doing and using the pain and the trauma that you experience to help others. I just think that is so great and so beautiful. Well, thank you, Kelly. That means a lot. A lot of times the way I look at it is using our mess can so often become our message. You know, yes. I really yeah. do believe that that's possible. I believe that if we choose to walk through the healing, that it will come and that we can use it in a positive way. And so that's really always my heart. My intention is, is, you know, to, to share that message with other survivors and, and all of us who walk planet mm. earth, you know, who walk mm. through difficulty, there's always hope and where there's hope, there's life. Yeah, exactly. Was I, there a moment where you felt like you had healed? Like, I know this is something that will be with you. You'll carry it forever. But like, was there a moment that you felt the weight lift? Chip, you know, that's a great question because once you walk through something like this, um, it is a kind of thing that stays with you for the rest of your life, but it doesn't define me. It's a part of my story. It's part of who I am. And I would say that there wasn't one defining moment though, that it was for me, a lot of things. It was, I was surrounded by an amazing family an amazing excuse me, an amazing family, an amazing community, an amazing church, an amazing trauma-trained therapist. And one of the things, a couple of things that were very healing for me was being able to tell my story over and over again, whether that was speaking it out or in written form, because it kind of helped me to decompartmentalize it. And uh, just, you know, it really helped me work it out. Um, and, And for for the fear not to control me anymore, because it would be so easy to just kind of stay mm-hmm. trapped in that fear, never go anywhere because mm-hmm. we've seen shootings happen at grocery stores and movie theaters and um, nightclubs. And I mean, you name it. And so being able to live life again and just, you know, choosing to live life and choose hope. Um, uh, it's, I think it's a lot of things. And then also I started traveling overseas. I remember when I was 16 years old, I went to war-torn Kosovo. The war was kind of coming to an end and I was able to bring Christmas gifts to children there. And I saw myself in the young kids who had survived war. I'm not saying what I went through was war, but I looked into their eyes and I saw myself reflected back in so many ways. And I saw their resilience and I saw their strength and I saw how they were choosing hope. And I thought, okay, I can too. You know, I think it's our stories that connect us and remind us of our humanity and give us courage to keep living. We need to keep telling our stories. They matter. They matter so much. And I think that connectedness and humanity is key to, to kind of finding our way out of, out of everything that we are experiencing right now. Um, 
but I just, in and I decided I want to do this with my life. I want to help other people. And even though every time I would go overseas and I would see people, what I believed were living their Columbine like experience, they didn't have a home to return to. They didn't have warm food. They didn't, they lost their family members and, and they were living their Columbine like experience 24 seven. And I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to help people. And every time I would help somebody else, healing began to take Mm. place. Like that was the natural byproduct that started to happen. And I didn't do it for that reason. But over time, all of those experiences started to shape and change me. And so to answer your question in a long roundabout way is that I think it was a lot of things that really contributed to my healing. And it was a process of time. It took time. Right. There was no, you know, there was no timetable. People would be like, aren't you better yet? And that's just, that's not, that's not what happens when we walk through tragedy. There's no timetable. Nobody gets to tell you how to heal or how long it's supposed to take. It will take as long as it needs to for every single person. Right. Is there, as a survivor, one thing that you would communicate to the public, to us, um, to people just out living their lives who haven't experienced something like this as ways that we can help? Like, how can we support people who have gone through things like this? And how can we support helping this not happen again? Like, in your perspective, what would you say to that? Man, if I had the exact answer to that, I think that we would see these, these mass shootings being prevented and, and we would see a change in that way. Um, I think we need to continue to look at, um, all the avenues that, Mm -hmm. that will lead to solving this problem. I mean, it's a multifaceted problem that will take a multifaceted solution. It's not just a one size fits all. I wish that it was, I I truly wish that it was, but we, it's taken us a long time to get here and it's going to take us a long time to get out. But I think whatever sphere of influence that you have, you know, whether it is within policy and legislation, you know, go that route. If it's, if it's in the mental health field, go that route. If it's in marriage and family, go that route. If it's in schools and education, go that route. But we need all hands on deck. And I think what's important is we're so divided and we're, we're just yelling at each other. And there's so much anger that we need to come together and we need to have a conversation because I think we're all closer on this issue than we are apart. Yes. And we just need to stop yelling and we need to stop um, being divided and come together because we all want the same thing. We want to see these things stop. We want to see a better world for our children. We want to see a better world for ourselves. And so I think it's coming to the table and it's having that conversation with a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy, a lot of openness and trying to find, trying to find the solution because I think that's ultimately what we all want. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I I think there's, there's one thing that sort of flips out on its head and it's the gun lobby, you know, because their goals are very different. And sadly, you know, they take the compassion part out of it because it's, they're thinking about their business. And, um, but I do, I agree. I think that more people we're, we're clo- a lot closer on the issue in terms of humanity um, than people want, you know, you would think b- because of the size of the argument. So um, I think it's really important that as we talk to people that we feel are on different sides of political lines that we approach the conversation with compassion and just from a very human, 
you know, non-constitutional standpoint, you know, it's, it's, this is lives and people that we're talking about. You're exactly right. And I do think that we've lost sight of humanity a bit. Mm-hmm. We need to come back to, it's really hard to hate someone, be angry at someone. If you know their story, mm-hmm. if you can look at at you know, their background and what brought them to where they are today and why they're so passionate. We all have a story and we need to just listen. We need to talk a little less and listen a little bit more. And I think that, you know, we'll find that humanity and our, and unity in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Crystal, thank you for sharing your story with us because I think it help will help a lot of people just to understand what that looks like. You know, like I said, we see it on the news, but it's really easy to separate yourself from that narrative if it hasn't actually happened to you. So I really appreciate you being here and sharing your story with us. I'm going to link the books and the link to the on-site website in the description of this podcast, but where else can people find you? Yeah, you know, um, crystalwoodmanmiller.org, I believe I should know my own website. (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm on I'm on Instagram and some of those things. But to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time on social media for my own personal mental health. Understood. Um, I try to live life and be present where I am as a mom, as a wife. Um, And so but but I am definitely on those channels under Crystal Woodman Miller. Um, So, yes, so you can look for me there. But I I just um, thank you so much, Chip and Kelly, for having me. And and thank you for your compassion and your sensitivity and for just having a really important conversation. Thank you for highlighting triumph over tragedy. I mean, again, that is that is my heart. So I appreciate you just making space so that we could talk about it. Well, it was our honor. So again, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you guys so much for listening. All this, all of the links, including Crystal's website, we will get to the bottom of what that name (laughs) is, will be in the description of this bio. Thanks so much again, Crystal. Thank you. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.